I'm Leo Notenboom, and I'm a PC. And I'm Gary Rosenzweig, and I'm a Mac. I think our listeners have been wanting us to do that ever since we went to the two hosts scenario. I'm really Leo Notenboom of AskLeo.com, and of course... I'm Gary Rosenzweig of MacMost.com. I got to say, though, you do have a kind of a, a passing resemblance to Justin Long, so it's not a, it's not uh, a bad I, I take that as a compliment, sure. Yeah, yeah. and I, I don't look anything like Hodgman, but... Um, uh, I've I've come to it's funny I was introduced to him through those commercials from God how long ago were they about ten years ago fifteen years ago yeah no even more yeah um, and I have stumbled into him a few times he's actually quite the he's incredibly intelligent mm-hmm. and he is a really good stand up comic he does he does some good humor from time to time I'm not sure what he's been doing lately but uh, it just dawned on me this afternoon that uh, we've been doing this Mac and PC thing for so long that uh, we should pay homage. Yes. To uh, to the predecessors. Indeed. Cool. So, uh, I don't even know how to transition into transition. your first story. <laughs> there is no <laughs> there is no appropriate segue. Although I will tell you that I was working um, with someone uh, just yesterday on a uh, a project involving the corresponding emoji. So we'll let that be your segue. That, that would be the poop emoji. Um, yeah, so a fascinating story that's come out uh, in the last couple of weeks is wastewater management and its role here in the pandemic. Um, because it turns out you can figure out what's going on with people's health by examining wastewater. Um, wastewater would be the stuff that, uh, basically when you flush your toilet, that's wastewater. So it turns out that when you are sick, uh, there are certain things in that waste that can then be detected, not individually from you. They don't know where it came from, but they do know the area it came from. For instance, a wastewater pipe that comes from a certain neighborhood, they could go and and monitor it and, uh, for instance, see how much coronavirus is actually present in the waste and then use that measurement to determine approximately how many people in that area have coronavirus. Now, this isn't new because they've been using this for a few years. I guess it's fairly new, but it predates the pandemic um, because they've been using this for things like polio. Um, They actually uh, measured an increase in the polio virus in um, the water in Paris several years ago and use that to basically say, hey, there's going to be an increase in polio. Um, let's start a public service campaign for vaccinations. And we're able to do that earlier than if they had just simply waited for people to start you know, coming to hospitals. And they say the same thing could happen here in future waves of COVID-19, uh, that it may actually appear in the wastewater before people start showing up at the hospitals, um, which would be a very useful thing to know. Um, the city of Boston, uh, or however, you know, the company that does wastewater management for that part of the world, uh, basically used this technique to measure COVID-19 in the, in the wastewater. And they came up with a very surprising result showing that I, I think the number was like, they estimate 115,000 people in this part of Boston must have COVID-19 in order for there to be that much in the wastewater. And only like 400 some actually had been tested positive in that neighborhood, which of course probably means a lot of asymptomatic cases 
right. uh, in the neighborhood. So, and they also have measured in other places the ups and downs. So they've been able to measure the uh, increase in it um, initially, and then its decrease as stay at home has helped alleviate the spread. So that's that, that's fascinating. I mean, it's it's. Um, I know that one of the big, big, big unknowns about COVID-19 is, of course, um, just how many asymptomatic carriers are there. Mm. Uh, there, you know, there's been plenty, plenty of speculation, right? And most of the speculation has boiled down to um, what answer you're looking for, as opposed to what's really going on, because we just don't have the data. Uh, we don't have the testing going on. Um, this right. Is, this kind of thing is is really fascinating. I know that. Um, every so often, we hear about uh, medications making their way into the uh, um, into the water supply because, or into essentially into the water supply or into the uh, you know through the wastewater. Uh, in that, uh, you know, some of the drugs we're taking. Uh, I know that some of the uh, the steroids, the antidepressants, the uh, um, uh, you know, birth control, those kinds of, yeah. of drugs are all showing up, uh, not just in the wastewater, but, you know, after they clean the wastewater to the extent that they can, of course, they can't necessarily pull all this kind of stuff out. And that goes back into our water supply. Right. Yeah. There's a big difference here. And, you know, the way we clean water, uh, several different techniques is extremely effective at killing living things like bacteria and yes. pseudo living things like viruses because viruses technically aren't really alive. Right. Um, but certainly the treatments we do, do destroy them. However, uh, chemicals such as medications uh, are, aren't as affected by those. And yeah, you can end up with saying, yeah, like you said, antidepressants, um, you trace amounts. Right. Yeah. They're, they're really tiny, but it's the kind of a thing that this is one of those scenarios where it, um, you know, those at least have been reported showing up in, in people's tap water. Uh, this is, like you said, this is a, uh, you know, not the same thing in the sense that, you know, we're really good at killing things or, you know, the, I'm not worried about coronavirus showing up in my tap water, but I do think it is really interesting to, that you can monitor things uh, at this point in the, uh, in the system, so to speak. I just want to know, I mean, I, I, I guess it shouldn't surprise me, but whose idea was it to say, you know what, let's go test the poop for COVID? Well, I'm pr pretty sure it comes from the earlier stuff when they were testing polio and for other things. So it comes out of those programs. So it's not like anybody said, let's do it for COVID. It was natural probably for them to say, you know, uh, let's test for COVID in this. You're probably curious, the original, you know, going back originally to True, testing. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, there are certain tests that uh, they do test your your output yes. <laughs> for uh, for certain things. Um, so it probably is not a, not a big stretch, um, you know, just looking for different ways to track things. It, so the way this could really be super useful is, um, you know, say we all in the coming months go back to, our lives partially at least. And they're worried that, um, well, we're gonna to have to put more restrictions in place if another wave comes around. And uh, when do they do that? If they wait for people to show up in the hospitals, it's really going to be pretty late in it. If they could get a few days jump on that by noticing a increase in wastewater, 
then it could actually save a lot of lives. You know, they could tell us, you know, before people start showing up in the hospitals uh, and coming out with symptoms that, oh, it's time for us to go you know, do another two weeks of, uh, you know, not going to restaurants um, because we've got, we've got some coming. This is especially tantalizing since uh, with COVID-19 specifically, uh-huh. the, uh, there definitely seems to be a, an asymptomatic period for everybody. Yeah, where you are um, contagious, you just don't know it. And the number that keeps getting thrown around is like two or three days before you start showing symptoms of actually having the disease. This hopefully would lead that a little bit better. In other words, hopefully uh, the, the signs would show up in the wastewater uh, for someone who uh, is asymptomatic but still a carrier. Right. And now another thing that goes on, of course, is the more people that are completely asymptomatic, that don't never really feel the disease, um, that we know that number is something large, probably larger by every estimate than the number of people that actually show symptoms, you know, whether it's the same amount, you know, uh, people that have it or several times, uh, we don't know. But if that number is large enough, uh, it, it could be, we could be closer to herd immunity than we think. Um, and of course, this, you know, uh, Boston uh, measurement here is saying 115,000 people may have had it when only 500 were actually tested positive. Right. That shows the most extreme uh, multiplier that I've ever seen right. uh, for this. And it also takes you to a really high percentage of the population. Um, I know, let's see, on, the, on that aircraft carrier, right? They tested everybody. And I think 94% tested positive. I mean, they knew that it just went around. Everybody got it, right? Mm-hmm. So, but 60%, they said, were asymptomatic. So that's like a lower number, you know, 40% right. were symptomatic. But that's also, that's a tough one because if you think about it, if you're sure that everybody on this ship is going to get it, then even the smallest symptom is then symptomatic. Right. You know, oh, you have a bit of a cough. Oh, you had, you know, let's, we're, we're taking your temperature three times a day. And one day, one time you did have it, you know, then it's symptomatic, but somebody in the general population may have had those same symptoms and be counted as asymptomatic because they just didn't, you know, it was like, oh, I had a cough one day, but it must've been something else. And now, well, and, and that's, what's frustrating. I mean, <clears throat> you know, I mean, just living life, you end up with a cough one day or the sniffles the other day, or, you know, yeah. your temperature may go up a couple of degrees for one reason or another, completely unrelated to, to certainly to COVID. Then again, I mean, it'd be certainly easy to then mistake it as, yeah, you know, this right. is just life. I feel fine. So things are going fine. And you never actually end up showing the more serious symptoms of the, uh, the disease. Now, one of the things that I find particularly confusing is that uh, one of the things out here, we're still, uh, we don't have enough tests to test the vast majority of the population. So the people that are getting tests are the folks that are in um, high-risk situations like the medical profession and, mm. and some others. The, as I understand it, these folks who are, one way or another, at least coming close to, if not in direct contact with the virus, uh, on a fairly regular basis, certainly a higher-risk population than, than the rest of us, they're still showing like 90% not infected, which I find confusing compared to mm. um, you know, the, the statistics that, that you're bringing here on, on output. Just because if any population 
was going to show a high degree of um, infected and not showing symptoms, I would have expected it to be the people that are in more or less constant contact with with infected and known infected people. So right. I think that there's just so much we don't know, which makes so many of the decisions that are being made these days, um, I mean, they're guesses. They're, they're, they're as educated a guess as we can do, mm. but they remain guesses one way or the other. Yeah, because it could simply be that the these people, you know, the, the medical workers are, t- are, of course, taking precautions. They're wearing masks, there's face shields, sure. there's all sorts of things. And that um, those, you know, one explanation could be that those precautions actually extremely effective. They really do work. Yeah. And they, yeah, yeah. So that that could be account for the low infection rate among them. Um, whereas simply not having those and just being in the same room as somebody who's talking, you know, who has it right. uh, is, you know, a really effective way of getting it. So, you know, the, the thing is, though, that the wastewater uh, testing could really help if it turns out that a, a lot more people have it than we thought in the past and we're getting towards more of a herd immunity, then this, t- you know, instead of having to say, okay, well, as long as everybody in your city shows up for an antibody test every week, we can continue as normal. But it'd be a lot easier to test the wastewater. Right. You know, if the, the idea is, you know, we can continue as normal as long as the wastewater is showing that it's not there. We don't need to test everybody. We could do one test, you know, right. or like five tests at five different wastewater facilities and know that, yep, there's no problem in this area. Everybody go about their business. And if we detect a problem, we'll, we'll have to lock down again. That, that, that's good news because that could really be uh, something, you know, look forward to later this year, next year, you know, as a way to, way to uh, get back to normal. I will throw one small fly in the ointment. Um, this assumes you have a sewer system, which works great well, for yeah. metropo- metropolitan areas. Yeah. Uh, but even me, I'm, I'm uh, just a couple miles uh, out of Redmond, uh, where, you know, Microsoft headquarters, highly populated area. You know, Woodenville, this is metropolitan Seattle is technically where, you know, the, where Woodenville is considered to be part of. I'm on a septic tank. And that means that uh, my output isn't being considered, right? Would not be considered any kind of wastewater treatment because it's just not going down that pipe. Um, so, and I think that rural areas in particular, where there just are no are no uh, sewage systems, uh, would maybe have to look at a different um, a different approach. Well, yeah, the antibody test or whatever. But it does. I mean, if if you live in a rural area but there's a big city nearby and the big city's all clear. Right. Um, you know, the big city can be your canary in the coal mine. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 It also makes me wonder if, um, I mean, I know that people are weird about this, but I wonder if uh, a, um, a fecal test would not be uh, some kind of alternative to mm. some of the other tests that they're doing right now. Uh, maybe again, potentially being able to determine things sooner rather than symptoms. Yeah, it it may be that you know that having a small number of tests, like you know, just eat one at each wastewater plant, and it could be a very involved test involving right. equipment and you know a little bit of time and all right, that right, stuff. Right. So doing it on an individual basis may not make any sense over just say doing a blood test. But then again, it could. I mean, you know, one of the standard tests these days for. Um, uh, uh, colon cancer, uh, 
is uh, nothing more than uh, detecting blood in your stool. And, you know, that's a very simple, very cheap, very fast test. So I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's, I, I find it absolutely fascinating that they, that they chose to look here. I find that uh, I agree with your, um, your hopefulness that the, uh, the data that's being collected here and the trend that might be visible from this Massachusetts data might, might stand a chance of giving us some, some hope and at least be able to make some more of those educated guesses a little bit more educated. Yep. So to switch topics to um, something that unfortunately is still quarantine related, but not disease related. uh, I stumbled across an article about something that just really resonated with me. Uh, It's, it's uh, on axios.com zoom fatigue, coronavirus teleconferencing uh, is uh, let's see why we're getting zoom. Why we're getting zoom fatigue. In other words, there is now another pandemic woe, as they put it. People are getting tired of video conferencing. And it just dawned on me that, yes, we were all very excited about it when we started doing this, simply because it was an alternative to going into work. It had a lot of promise, or still has a lot of promise, certainly for uh, making the commute unnecessary. People, I think, are finding that there's a lot more that they can do out of the office uh, that they, than they perhaps didn't realize in the past. But uh, video conferencing isn't always something, uh, you know, all that it's cracked up to be, and not necessarily for technical reasons, but more for the, uh, the social side of things. Now, I have participated in my share of both audio and video uh, teleconferences, both using Zoom and some of Zoom's competitors. And I don't know if you've seen it, Gary, but there are some memes making the the, the rounds. They started actually pretty quickly. Uh, it's basically Zoom bingo or teleconferencing bingo, yeah. Yeah, sure. where you see all of these checkboxes for things that anybody who's been in a teleconference has absolutely experienced. You know, um, uh, Karen, turn your mic on. Uh, Joe, turn your mic off. Mute yourself. Uh, you know, there's somebody running running behind you. Uh, have them put clothes on, please. Uh, you know, those kinds of things. And unfortunately, when you're in such a conference and you're attempting to get things done, uh, everything from just audio lag to uh, understanding that uh, you know we look, we're looking at our own picture and maybe being a little bit more self-conscious about what we look like uh, to any number of things that um, um, just make a video conference. We already know that it's very different than being in the same room with a bunch of people, but it is it brings its own level of of stress and psychological factors to play that um, I think people now are starting to uh, realize that while it probably, like I said, beats the commute, uh, it's not necessarily a panacea. It's not a solution to everything, as uh, the uh, the Axios article ends with. Uh, the bottom line, well, yeah, the, their little thought bubble, as they call it, not everything needs to be a Zoom meeting. 
phone calls still worked fine too, which I think was interesting because like what you and I are doing right now, we choose, we're ha- we happen to be using Zoom, mm-hmm. but we use it over phone instead of a phone call because we want the audio quality. The audio quality that we get from a digital conversation like this is way higher than you would get over a traditional telephone. And that includes a, a cellular phone. But when you start throwing multiple people on screen or multiple people in an audio conference, um, things can very quickly and very easily get frustrating. And it's that frustration, I think, that's causing some people to, uh, well, causing this new phrase to appear, Zoom fatigue. Hmm. Interesting. So, um, I don't, yeah, I don't know what uh, what's going to happen after, say, another month of this. I suspect that uh, people are going to start making the choices they should have been making from the beginning. Uh, not everything needs to be a Zoom meeting. Yeah. Uh, not everything needs to be a visual meeting, right? I mean, uh, the the more often the the uh, the meetings that I attend using uh, we happen to use GoToWebinar, but it's it's the same basic idea. We don't throw cameras on. We don't we don't do that. It's all about just voice, and uh, in this case, a screen share. Typically, there's something on the screen that we want people to look at. Uh, so I think a lot of people are going to find out that yeah, they don't really need to see everybody. Talking is fine. Uh, and I think that a lot of people are going to say, you know, we don't really need a Zoom meeting for this when an email will deal with it or some other solution may come up uh, that is less stressful. So in the long run, I honestly think that people will realize that Zoom is a wonderful tool. Tools like it are wonderful tools for certain classes of problems, just not every problem. Yeah, and I wonder if usage will fall off a little bit, even among people that are working closely together. I'm thinking in particular about my book writing. I started writing computer books in the mid nineties and continued all the way up to just three years ago. And almost every single book worked the same way. I would write stuff and it would just be me working for a while, but then I would turn chapters in and those chapters would then be edited uh, by various editors, technical editors, project editors, copy editors. Uh, at certain points, they'd come back to me. There'd be changes in them with tracking. I'd correct them. I'd leave notes for different editors that I knew were after me. Those people, like a technical editor, may leave a note for me to you know, do something with something here. And, and it would go back and forth in these documents, a lot of times in email. Um, and we would do the entire book all the way up to me getting PDFs and us putting, you know, comments on the PDFs, markup on the PDFs to, you know, make changes and things like that all the way to publication of an entire book with, you know, at least five, six people involved, actually including like layout and design, uh, you know, maybe more like 10 people involved uh, over the course of four or five months. Um, Every single time I, never ever had a single zoom meeting (laughs) it didn't exist uh i've rarely ever had a phone call Mm -hmm. i mean like maybe my entire book writing career i for like 95 to 2017 i probably had like five phone calls (laughs) involving different things it just never happened and yet high amount of collaboration turning out a product on a deadline yep 
Yep. Yeah, it's, it, it is really interesting. It's funny because it reminds me that, um, again, being techie and this being actually our business, I always wanted to come up with an excuse to use a tool like Slack, right? I mean, Slack was the big thing uh, for a variety of different reasons. And I went ahead and, and set up Slack and did a few channels and, you know, uh, set it up, you know, so that my team all had access um, nobody ever used it. Uh, it was one of those things where, you know, email was doing just fine. Uh, the, the ticketing system I use for questions coming in, it works just fine. There really isn't a need for uh, another more immediate, more even in-person uh, scenario for these guys. In fact, uh, of my uh, assorted assistants, I have four in various roles right now. Uh, I have, uh, there's at least one of them whom I have spoken to exactly once in like 10 years. Uh, the others, the, the others uh, uh, I've spoken to a couple of times, but even then uh, I've only met two of them. Uh, one of them because she happens to be local and it was convenient. And the other one be was because I was on a trip and I decided, you know, she's been working for me for over a decade. I should finally meet her. And I actually made the trip out there to do it. So it wasn't part of the job, right? It wasn't part of getting any work done. It was just part of, of meeting someone that you've been interacting with for a decade. Uh, so yeah, there's so much that can be done without these, these kinds of tools that I suspect that, uh, like I said, a lot, of, a lot of people are going to learn from the experience and make some decisions about what kind of interactions they need and what kind of interactions they want to have in what form, where Zoom, rather than becoming uh, the go-to tool, just becomes another tool in the tool belt that is used for certain things. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, uh, let's go ahead. Okay, so this is a little political, but you know what? I don't really care because, uh, I don't know, th this kind of political thing, I, it's not, it's not, it, it's got a technical side to it. And uh, basically it's about, you know, this, these protests that were held over the last few days to reopen uh, businesses and stuff, you know, reopen states. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and they got a lot of news attention, even though, uh, the protests were particularly small. Matter of fact, the, one of the ones that got the most attention was the one two miles from my house, uh, because a uh, a medical worker, two medical workers in scrubs, actually stood out in front of the cars. Oh, that's right. I saw pictures yeah. of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's like a big picture, famous picture now. Yep, and that was like that happened like two two miles from my house. Actually, there's been some local interviews. There was a local in-depth interview with the photographer that took it, and uh, and it, it it was real. Uh, so, you know, whether or not you, they don't know much information about the medical workers, but anyway, that's besides the point, you know, what is interesting is something, how this relates to something called astroturfing. Have you ever heard that term before? I've, is I've heard of, the phrase, but refresh me. So astroturfing is when, you know, a small, maybe far away group, uh, tries to make a movement or something look like it's local grassroots. You know, so like uh, uh, somebody far away, you know, creates a website and a Facebook page and a Twitter account and tries to get up support for something and they're not even nearby. 
um, it's called, you know, astroturfing, political influencing. I was going to say, I think that, that, you know, certainly in, in recent, well, in the last couple of decades, it's, it's very common, I think, when um, national interests have an interest in a local issue that they'll come in and right. try and, and uh, influence the local voters by seeming, by implying that they're local. Yeah. So in this case, suddenly, you know, we had everybody was stay at home and, you know, uh, uh, you know, in all, all these states and these stay at home orders and quarantining and all that stuff. And then all of a sudden, it seemed there was a bunch of uh, small movements in certain places that were going to protest saying we want uh, we want, you know, businesses to be reopened. Um, and it seemed a little too fast for some people. So, uh, some people, particularly on Reddit started researching this and then some security researchers joined in and found some really fascinating little things. Like a lot of these websites are called reopen. And then the two state, uh, initials, you know, are, uh, characters that represent the state. So, uh, you know, these are all, of course, registered anonymously. You can't, there's a privacy protection. Over. You don't know who owns the domain. However, that didn't stop people from actually figuring some things out. Like, for instance, if several of those domains were actually purchased at the same time, you could be pretty sure that somebody made, you know, bought a couple of them, right. threw them into a cart and hit purchase. I was going to say the same time from the same registrar. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So you don't know if they're owned by the same person, but... It's obvious that it is. And then, of course, in, in this situation, it's particularly, you know, becomes astroturfing because if you're saying, hey, we're the local uh, group from this state, and another one says, we're the local group from this state, and it's like, no, you're not because your domain name is registered by the same person, you know, and so obviously, clearly, the person could only be a citizen of one of those two states and probably isn't a citizen of either one. And then there were a few other interesting things like uh, so, uh somebody, uh, people started to notice Google analytics codes. Now Google analytics codes are basically <laughs> a tiny tracker that you put on a page and it's gotta be, what do you think? Like 90% of the internet has these. Right. Um, basically you put this little thing on a page and then you have this cool place you can go to in Google that tells you how many people are visiting your site, you know, how many new people were visiting, what pages they went to, all this stuff. And it's really useful information. Uh, you know, you don't want to put a website up there and be like, Oh, how many people are reading your blog? Well, I don't know. You know, you, you want to be able to say, Hey, usually a right. hundred, but this week a thousand, cause I, you know, put a really good article up or something. Right. So people use Google analytics for this. Well, Google Analytics codes are unique. And if you put the same code at a different website, that means you own both those websites. Yeah, the, the way that the codes work, I discovered this some time ago. It actually, the codes have two parts, right? There's the, the owning account mm -hmm. and the property. So, yeah. for example, um, I don't have Google Analytics on Ask Leo right now, but it used to be, you know, there would be my my Google account dash, I forget if it was 01 or 02 or whatever. But then if I go to my personal blog, it's the same Google account with a different number. So, it's very easy to see that these are two sites that are at least being analyzed by the same person. Right. So, some of these sites that didn't seem to be connected or, you know, you could try to give them the benefit of the doubt that they were local and not connected. Uh, turns out they're using the same Google analytics code. So clearly that's not the case. And also <laughs> people are able to tie them to other sites. So for instance, if a site shows up and it's got a, uh, like for instance, you could go and look at one of my game sites and from the Google analytics code, you could figure out it's related to Mac most. 
And you'd right. be correct. And I'm not hiding it. It's on, you go to my main website. I, I say, here are some of my sites and I show that you with them both. But if you are trying to hide it, this could reveal that. And it turns out that when they did searches for all this stuff, that a lot of these uh, reopening, you know, state name, uh, .com sites are also uh, people that owned various gun rights sites, Republican Party organizations, conservative think tanks, and religious and different advocacy groups. So not necessarily your first site, your first political site you're putting up there. Uh, it's tied to a, an organization. Um, and that may be new information for a lot of the people who support these sites. They may think they're going to a site that is just about reopening business in my area. And in fact, uh, the organization behind the protests that they're involved in and the site they're participating in is actually also behind other political causes. Now, that unfortunately, fortunately or unfortunately, there actually is another possible explanation, and I'm not going to necessarily um, you know, throw probabilities out there. But for example, um, you and I, we all uh, use various service providers to to get our jobs done. Um, let's let's take an innocuous example. Um, Vimeo. You use Vimeo, right? Yes. For okay. My course. So, my course videos. Yeah. Right. So Vimeo is a a video hosting service. Um, they uh, I've started using it for a few things myself as well. So uh, without looking at other data you could take a look and say, well, you know what? Mac most uses Vimeo. Ask Leo uses Vimeo. Those two must be related. Um, and it could not even be, it could even be as obscure as not necessarily using Vimeo, but using some random code or whatever that happens to be common to, amongst uh, Vimeo users. Um, that's a very unlikely scenario because Vimeo is such a large organization and already has a footprint that spans a lot of the internet. But uh, there is another explanation that could potentially be something like, hey, we're a service provider set up to put up these kind of sites. You in Colorado, if you're interested in setting up one of these kinds of sites, we can do all the work for you. It's still you. It's still your site. Um, you know, it's still uh, owned, operated, and run by people in your state. But if there's a there happens to be this really popular common service provider across this particular um, um, interest group. Now, uh, is that likely? I don't know. My, my sense is probably not. But um, nonetheless, there's nothing that we can look at in the data that at this point, assuming they did their jobs right, um, that would, would tell us one way or another. I got to say uh, that if they are um, if they're using the same Google Analytics code, as an example, across multiple sites like this, this speaks to their, uh, and, and if they are attempting to maintain this anonymity and uh, distancing from one another, uh, they're doing a poor job. They, they don't, really get all the details of what it means to have a website on the internet uh, 
So I just, I, it's, it's a fascinating discovery. I'm just not sure exactly everything that can be inferred from it. Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the inference that the, you know, the, the, the researchers are going towards is, is just basically that, you know, these groups are not necessarily local grassroots, uh, you know, spontaneous uprisings of people. Right. Um, the, that, that people are being manipulated and which um, is absolutely very, very possible. Mm. We just can't say that with absolute certainty based no, on we can't. what they've, what they've discovered so far. We can't. So it's, it's fascinating from a standpoint of, uh, you know, you try to use technology to, um, right. to, to further a cause. And, uh, you know, you think that it is something that's like, Oh, this will help me further my cause. But in fact, um, there's, there's also the downsides if you don't understand the technology uh, and, you know, people it's, can... it's a wonderful example of just how easy it is to leak data. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the, just again, to focus on the Google anal- analytics code, because it's, it's a, it's an, it's an example I understand. Um, it's, it's one of those things where as a website operator, eh, you may not even think about it. You know, it's, it's just not one of those things that crosses your radar. Uh, but it is a very clear indicator that there is a relationship of some sort between two sites. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, so I'm yeah. going to have to run, run around and rethink all my sites to see if I really want them to be all related. <laughs> 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 they are, they are, I've actually got the domain registration all the same. So it's not, yeah, you know, I've never really <laughs> tried to, uh, you know, hide any uh, associations between my sites. Matter of fact, even trying to, when I create something new, even trying to say, hey, you know, people at this site, if you happen to be interested in this stuff, right. you, know, here's, you know, links and stuff like that. But, but that's not, I mean, you and I are in the internet game because we are trying to right. help people and do things and publish things. And, you know, it's like the opposite of, uh, uh, you know, of trying to hide I think well, the, there's that, and, and we're in this for the technology as well, right? I yeah. mean, it's like you know, the understanding how Google Ana- Analytics works is cool. Understanding what, um, um, you know, what the steps you need to to take to uh, preserve some level of privacy uh, without necessarily hiding everything. For example, it used to be the case uh, that it was exceptionally easy to accidentally expose your home address when you registered a domain, mm, yeah. expose it publicly. And, uh, you know, so there's various techniques around that. Uh, I have a post office box that I list instead of. That's what I uh, do too. And uh, I have a, a Google voice phone number that I use instead of anything, uh, instead of either my cell or my home number. Again, it gets to me, but it's just not my primary phone number because I didn't want to expose that on all the registrations. Uh, you can hide all that by paying extra for uh, privacy. Uh, when you register the domain, but apparently a lot of registrars are now keeping things private by default, which uh, I have found to be exceptionally frustrating when trying to do the kind of research that these analysts were attempting to do. Uh, It's, you know, very often I'm coming across sites that are, um, you know, benign. They're just, you know, sites and you're kind of curious as to who's behind them, who owns them, are they the same people as this? And no, it's, you know, registration by proxy or privacy, you know, uh, registration privacy of some sort. Uh, 
And that part I do honestly find a little frustrating from time to time. That doesn't mean... Uh, doesn't the European Union now, their privacy laws don't allow that anymore? I don't know. Um, it's in theory, uh, the information would still be available, but I think you have to go through the exercise of actually attempting to make contact, which means that in order to expose who they are, you kind of sort of have to expose who you are which acts as a barrier uh, for a lot of people to just sort of casually try and find out who, uh, and that may be enough, right? I mean, it, it, that kind of, you know, as long as you can ask for the information and get it somehow, that may be enough. Or it may be enough that says as long right. as this anonymous email address gets to the site owner, that may be enough. Uh, but I don't, I just don't know the, I may have that the opposite. Like I actually, I may be wrong in that the, um, GDPR actually makes it all private. That would make a little bit more sense. Yeah, I think that's what's going on. Is that is that you don't even have you, you don't even have to have any of those extra you know pay the few bucks extra a year to have privacy. It's just automatically private as part right. of their new policy there. Right. So that would that's even more frustrating. It is. Um, uh, so, but it is what it is. Um, it's, it is one of those things where if people want to explicitly expose who they are, they can do it on the very website you're researching, right? Which you and I do, right? We've got contact information, our names plastered all over the sites, but, uh, that's not necessarily true for other sites. For example, um, one of the things, and I think one of the reasons that just this became a hot topic for me recently is, uh, we've been researching of all things N95 masks. Uh, you know, just sort of seeing if what's available, what, what are people uh, charging for them and so forth. And uh, my wife, you know, would say, hey, could you check out this site? Could you check out this site? Could you check out that site? Uh, as she was just sort of doing the kind of research that the average person would do to try and locate these things. And what I was finding was that um, all of the domains were private. All of the domains have been registered within the last, I'll say, three months. Uh, and they were all uh, selling through a service called Shopify. Hmm. So uh, that's, you know, again, one of those data points. And now that you mentioned this about things like the GDPR, it's very possible that they had no choice but to register anonymous or, you know, privately. Uh, but uh, that means that's another data point that I can't use to determine whether or not the site that we're about to throw some money at is legitimate or not. Right. And it's, uh, you know, throwing money or your trust. I mean, that's the thing, you know, you see a news site, right. uh, it has an article that interests you, but you have no way of really figuring out who's behind the site. Um, obviously, there are sites that make that perfectly clear, um, have contact information, all that stuff. But there are plenty of sites that, that don't. Uh, and Right. Although, especially like in the news space, um, I know that a lot of people don't look at it this way, but I certainly do. If I can't tell who you are, I'm just inherently not going to trust what you say when it comes to news. Um, I want the news to come from people who at least are willing to identify themselves with respect to the content that they're providing. Um, I may or may not agree with them. They may take extreme positions. That's fine. But the, the, the position, you know, the fact that they don't feel confident enough in what they're saying to at least identify themselves in some fundamental way, to me, that's a huge strike against. 
Um, like, but like I said, a lot of people, uh, you know, they, they, they tend to believe what they already agree in regardless of the source. Right. Yeah. I so, don't think it's a confidence issue. Right. People feeling confident. I think it's, it's uh, yeah, it's one of those things. And especially when you have sites that actually try to imitate other new sites using the name of the site or a, a something that sounds kind of like the name of a new site, you right. know, enough, maybe just to fool you that one time. Right. Um, yeah. So hmm. let's see. So what's cool this week. So I was having a, a discussion where in this case, discussion is something that happens over WhatsApp uh, with my cousin in Holland. And she was telling me that they just gotten a new e-reader and it dawned on me that uh, for folks that aren't necessarily in the sit down and stream a movie crowd, uh, I got to believe that uh, e-readers and e-books in general have to be also experiencing the same or some kind of a surge with relation to all of the, the quarantining that people are doing. In my case, uh, you know, my wife and I, you know, we're all in on Kindle. We've got uh, over 1,500. We have 1,586 titles in our Kindle library, which is probably uh, hell. It's probably grown by one or two since we started this uh, this podcast just because <laughs> my wife picks up books all the time. She's a voracious reader. Mm. Um, and in chatting with my cousin, I mentioned that, yeah, you know, we're all in on e-readers. We've got multiple Kindles and we've got the apps on our phones and our laptops and God knows. Uh, she says, you know, in, in the Netherlands, apparently it's Kobo, uh, K-O-B-O.com. That uh, is where they're getting both their readers and their content from. Uh, which, you know, is great. I, I think the, the very, the, just the concept of e-readers and it makes, I mean, as much as we lament the disappearance of the bookstore, uh, being able to purchase things uh, across the internet and have them appear on your device is the ultimate in social distancing and is a wonderful way to keep, you know, to provide people with lots and lots of really valuable, really interesting content uh, while they're still stuck at home. So, um, yeah, that's just, you know, I, that's just me waxing poetic about e-readers and their role in our current society, because I think they actually, uh, like the Netflixes and the other streaming services of the world are providing a way for people to escape and, and occupy themselves when they can't, you know, otherwise wouldn't, you know, be unable to, uh, to leave the home. Indeed. Uh, speaking of leaving home, uh, <laughs> uh, my, my cool thing is, uh, that, uh, we have a launch date for the first manned mission from SpaceX. And this is exciting in so many ways. Uh, right now it's set for May 27th next month. Um, and this would be, well, let's see. First, it'll be the first time uh, people are launched from American soil since 2011, since the last shuttle mission. Uh, it will mean a return to having the capability in the United States of launching people into space to the space station and other things. Uh, it means that we no longer are a, basically a uh, one nation can launch into space uh, planet anymore. Technically we weren't because China can do it. I was going to say too. China was doing it too. Yeah. But they, they're, uh, you know, I'm sure that there are a few people that have emergency contingency, contingency plans that if they needed to help the space station out, they could, but technically they're not part of this international right. space station. Right. So it was only Russia supplying that. And uh, then it'll be, now it'll be 
uh, SpaceX. Uh, let's see, a lot of other things. I mean, it means, when I mean, you think about it, the if you don't count the space shuttle, right, a reusable, basically, space plane or space mm -hmm. glider, uh, we haven't launched a man into space and a rocket since the 70s. Right. That's, you know, since the Apollo 18, you know, joint Soyuz link-up mission, that was the last time we put somebody on a, on a, on a non-shuttle rocket uh, in the United States. So that's interesting. And also, this being a private enterprise means that it's not just America getting the capability to send people into space. This means Elon Musk now has the capability. <laughs> you know, so technically, you know, they can launch on the 27th and... I mean, there are probably a few documents and a few okays to get here and there, but in June, he could turn around to a couple of friends and say, who wants to go for a ride? <laughs> uh, you know, it, I mean, it's not going to happen, but not like, not like that. Not likely, think. but, but technically, you know, it, a private company will have that ability for the first time. So it's, it's really exciting. It's really exciting. And I got to tell you, I'm scared. And the reason yeah. I say that I'm scared is, I mean, it it is likely to go off flawlessly. I shouldn't even say flawlessly. It's likely to go off just fine. But the cost of failure in this scenario, especially the cost of a catastrophic failure in this scenario, is huge. Mm -hmm. um, if, if something happens where uh, the astronauts die, then that will set back uh, our return to space, gosh, years, literally years. It will be, yeah, be years. It won't be as long as if it was a purely public enterprise. Like if NASA was doing it with a new rocket, that would be, I'd say, a five-year setback. Whereas private enterprise doing it, it would be more like a two- or three-year setback just because private enterprise is more willing to take risks Right, um, but also keep in mind this is not this is the same rocket that they've been launching oh, yeah. for resupply missions. It's the same basic capsule yep. that they've been basically ripping the seats out and putting. Uh, yeah, I'm oversimplifying, but yep. ripping the seats out and putting supplies in. Right. Um, so it's not like you know, it's not like there's very much new technology being tested. Right, which is exactly the way to, the, to yeah. be doing it. I mean, I, the, the, the approach that they're, they're taking makes a tremendous amount of sense. I'm just scared. <laughs> oh, no, sure. I, I am too. I, I so want this to uh, to work and be successful and we're all good. And uh, and then, then they do the next one a couple months later and then there's more stuff. And then maybe we get yep. next year, you know, the announcement that SpaceX is going to do something on their own. It's not a NASA mission, right? Some right. people are going to go up and they're going to do a, a, a you know a few days of orbit to do whatever in space uh, and not hook up with the International Space Station or something. Right. Uh, we also used to have space tourists on the International Space Station. That mm -hmm. hasn't happened for a while, but I think wasn't there uh, wasn't it an accident in uh, on the, the, one of the Russian rockets? that had them say, we're not going to do that anymore? I don't recall. I think that. So possibly you could be looking at uh, a return to having space tourists. Now, none of the tourists were actually like tourists, just there to hang out. They were all- oh, no, They uh, were usually, given jobs. Yeah, they, they were given jobs. They usually were sponsored by their government, not because I think there were some from other 
countries, you know, where they had, they had a lot, they had plenty to do. It was a sure, working vacation. Sure. Um, but, but I'm even thinking of yeah. like, and, and it, there was at least one individual uh, whom coincidentally I've met, um, Charles Simone. He's an ex Microsoft guy. And he just simply bought a ticket, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he went through all the training and he went up there as a private citizen. Uh, and yeah, they gave him work to do. He had things to do up there. He wasn't just sort of sit around right. and look out the window the entire time. <laughs> yeah, I'm Which sure. Which would be he, really, really tempting. I mean, I want to take my tempting. camera and take a bunch of pictures. <laughs> oh, I'm sure he, he got a few minutes to take a few pictures. But but uh, yeah, I mean, I guess the dream, though, for most people at this stage is to go up there and work. You know, right. uh, if I could afford it, I, would, I wouldn't want to go up there on a vacation. I'd want to be part of the crew. Right. I want to you know, do stuff, run stuff, help out. And all that stuff. So anyway, it's exciting. And, you know, uh, hopefully it, there, there is a decent chance that it may not happen on May 27th. There are lots of reasons yep. things are scrubbed and pushed back. And they mentioned that, you know, having a pandemic pandemic going on isn't exactly, uh, you know, great uh, to, to actually, you know, have things happen on time. Things are more likely to be pushed back a week or a month or whatever. Right. But uh, we'll see. Uh, and of course, I, I I didn't read this anywhere, but I assume that the typical quarantine situation happens with uh, these astronauts that have always happened. Um, whereas, just they don't want to send somebody over there that's going to come down with the flu or even a cold, right. uh, let alone coronavirus. So usually, you go into quarantine. I think two weeks in advance. That's what I would hope. Yeah. Yeah, I think when I read, oh, what's the astronaut who's really good at communicating? He was a space station astronaut. Wrote a book. It oh, the Canadian. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, is it Hatfield? No. Yeah. It, and but anyway, we will, he, we will look it up and we'll throw a link in yeah. the show notes. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, his book. I mean, I read his book, and yeah, apparently, I mean, they still do that. Even if you go to Russia for a launch, you're quarantined for a while. They want to make sure you're not going to get sick two days after you launch. So you're just isolated with your crew. Chris Hatfield. Yeah, there it is. Chris Hatfield. Yeah, and uh, and then you, um, and, and that way they can assure it. So you know the same thing would be true here. You'd probably be isolated. These astronauts would be isolated for two weeks, I'm sure, and uh, have a clean bill of health. Nothing comes up after two weeks. Then they get in their spacesuits. They go out. They get into the rocket, and they have no chance to to actually be sick right. at all. So anyway. Certainly cool. Yep. I'll be, I don't know what, what time of day that'll end up being, but uh, I, that's one that I will probably end up watching live. Yeah, with me my, as well. Yeah. With my heart in my hands, I'll tell you. <laughs> uh, let's see. So where do I want to send people this week? I have an article that just republished last week. How does a VPN protect me? It's, again, as we're all working from home and as we're all uh, connecting up to various services, there are... There's been a lot of advice. I've seen, I've seen so many articles that say, hey, you got to use a VPN. You got to use a VPN. Uh, which VPN should I use? All that kind of stuff. And a lot of that actually, I think, is based on a misunderstanding of exactly what it is a VPN actually protects you from and when it actually makes sense to use. I know that a lot of people who are working for mid to large corporations are using a VPN simply by the act of connecting up to your corporate network, right? It's a, it's a VPN 
connection to your corporate network. It's not one of the popular VPN services that you use in mm. public. It's, it's something that your corporation has set up. So by definition, you are protected. But on the other hand, um, if you're working at home, is there really a lot of added value to a VPN? Well, maybe. It depends on what the risks are. Anyway, um, askleo.com slash 4668 is how does a VPN protect me? And it's a good overview of exactly um, what it does and doesn't protect you from. Yep, and I took a look at it today, and I love the graphics. Very clear on it, cool. explaining exactly Thank what's you. protected in what situation. Um, I have, uh, I of course did a, a special episode last week because Apple came out with a new product, the iPhone SE. Um, so I did my rundown of that. Uh, we'll have a link to that. It's you know basically I gave a, a, a obviously I don't have the phone. <laughs> I have an iPhone 11, uh, you know, Pro Max. Um, so I'm not going to be buying the the iPhone SE anytime soon, but it uh, seems to be a really good option at 400 bucks. And the most important thing in it, about it is, even though the screen isn't as good as the top end, the cameras aren't as good, that like everything is pretty like base level, except the most important thing, which is the processor. They oh, put cool. The latest processor in it. So what they've done is they've done the opposite of what people usually accuse Apple of doing. They future-proofed it. They basically said, here's the iPhone SE second generation. We're going to be producing this one for years because with this A13 Bionic processor, the same one in the iPhone 11s, mm -hmm. it's basically current to 2020. And it means that three, four, maybe even five versions of iOS from now, it'll still be a supported processor. Uh, and that's that's a great thing, and, you know, because it's tempting to go and say, "Hey, everybody who wants a cheap iPhone, you get processor from two years ago, right? You know, that we can get cheap." So right. the fact they put the current processor in it was just a uh, I don't know, it's just a great thing that Apple does, and it and anybody on a budget but wants a phone that's just an iPhone and it's going to last, they don't want to have to replace it for five years. It's uh, it's a great deal. It's funny because there's every once in a while. I mean. I, you know, Apple throws out great products and every once in a while, I'm really tempted to dive further into the Apple ecosystem. Um, my wife is, uh, where she's going to need a new phone here coming uh -huh. up soon. The old one. Um, it's actually my, I think it's my previous, previous main phone. So it's a, it's a two generation hand-me-down. Uh, and you know, it's showing its age. It's just, it has its issues. So we're in the market and I'm probably going to go ahead and, um, purchase something new for her rather than, uh, go the hand-me-down route. <clears throat> yeah. But right now what I'm waiting for is the uh, Pixel 4a, mm -hmm. which is the, um, the, it's a cheaper version of the Google Pixel 4, which is, uh, you know, supposedly a very, very nice phone. But again, the details are what matter in a situation like that. And like you said, how long is it going to last? Um, so yeah, uh, things like the SE, I understand the market completely. Um, if we were in the Apple ecosystem, that would be the phone for my wife, absolutely, because it would be one that um, does exactly what she needs and is going to last a long time. Yep. So cool. I think that pretty much does us for this week. Yeah. The show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com/teh95. 
As always, if you've got a comment or a question for us, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at The TEH Podcast, or you can always leave a comment on the show notes page. I actually get um, email notification when that happens. And we typically turn around and respond if there's a question or comment if it's something nice and ignore you if it's something not. (laughs) (laughs) But know that we've read it, even if we don't respond. All right, that's it for this week. Take care, everyone. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye.